Hello everybody, I hope you're all doing well. I'm a little bit under the weather recording this, so let's not waste any time. Let's get into it, as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. My neighbors have been acting really strange. I think something is seriously wrong. Written by Saturdad. I'm not a conspiracy nut. I don't believe the moon landing was fake or that there's a secret world government run by lizards. I'm a sane, rational human being. With that said, I'm convinced my neighbor is building some sort of nest. I'm not joking. Let me explain. I got divorced about a year ago and had to move to a new place on short notice. I got a pretty decent two-room apartment on the third floor of an old apartment building. The place was probably built in the 50s, but I couldn't get a cleaner, cheaper apartment that isn't out of my price range. I moved in and tried to pick up the pieces of my life. At least my wife took all the heavy and expensive boxes in the divorce settlement. I only saw my neighbors in passing. There are two apartments per floor and five floors in total. I live on the third floor. And straight across from me is a retired elderly woman. She lives with two cats and has a younger man visiting about once a week. Probably her son. The two apartments below me aren't that interesting. A child is couple and straight across from them, three college kids. No big deal. The apartment straight above me was probably the most important one. That's the one that you gotta look out for when moving to a new place. If anything is going to disturb you, that'll be the one. You don't want them to be clogged dancing enthusiasts, manic cleaners, or the kind of idiot who listens to music with loudspeakers on the bus. The guy who lived above me, Hugo, was an ideal neighbor. He was some kind of accountant who worked at the sanitation department. He kept to himself and never moved a single piece of furniture and didn't move around much. No slamming doors and no running. He was pretty big body-wise with a sizable pair of glasses and a thinning hairline. He lived alone, seemed friendly, and he was simply the best neighbor that I'd ever had. God bless that silent, chunky angel. So, let's talk about the nesting. It started a few months ago in December. It was at the height of the 2020 pandemic, so I was trying to get some minor Christmas shopping done in the off hours of the day. I had flexible work hours and I can work from home, so I can go out whenever I need to. I was getting a photo printed for my mom and was trying to find a fitting frame. I found this small store with a going on a business sale, and I noticed that Hugo was browsing some silverware further in, only he wasn't alone. Christ, I'm having a hard time describing this woman. She was half his weight and an entire head taller, and she wasn't even wearing heels. Neck like a swan, thin shoulders and gorgeous nutmeg hair. She had a peculiar smell, like a mix of a bittersweet flower and tunny. Pale and flawless skin, red nails. I couldn't stop staring at her. Hugo had told her something funny and her laugh seemed to light up the entire room. She grabbed his arm, kissed his cheek, and whispered something back to him. He smiled. I had never seen him smile before. 
I saw them buy plates, silverware, and a few blankets. Nothing special. She paid for the whole thing and carried it all out in a tote bag. Hugo just hung to her every word, but they both seemed to genuinely care for one another. It didn't make sense to me. They were basically different species of people. Over the coming days, I had noticed some changes. I could sometimes hear laughter coming from the stairwell, and I could hear furniture being moved around during the day. Hugo got himself a new car, one of those large six-seaters. They were drilling and hammering a few times a week, and at two occasions, I noticed Hugo and his girlfriend were carrying large carpets up the stairs. He seemed so happy. I don't want to sound like a stalker, but I was curious about the two of them. I noticed that they had changed the names on the door, and that's how I had learned her name, Sandra. After going through a painful divorce, I'll be the first to admit that I was jealous. Sandra was gorgeous and it didn't make sense for her to be with a guy like Hugo. I was spending weeks on end in lockdown, alone, hearing laughter coming through the ceiling. Yeah, it made me bitter. Sue me. But then her family moved in. Hugo helped to carry a lot of heavy boxes up those stairs and I caught a glimpse of the whole crew through my back window. Sandra had two younger sisters, both just old enough to start high school. And then there was her dad who looked to be in his early 60s. The whole lot of them were beautiful. Everybody smiling, eager to help. Healthy, happy, well-dressed. You could fall in love with either one of them with just a picture. It was weird for so many of them to move into such a small apartment, but I had seen stranger things. I figured that it was a temporary thing, but I changed my mind once I saw the moving vans. Yes, the vans, plural. Three vans full of boxes, not a single piece of furniture. Hugo looked exhausted at carrying those heavy boxes up and down several flights of stairs, but Sandra didn't seem bothered at all. I know looking at them like that was creepy. I was painfully single and most of all, bored. As December turned to January, the whole family had settled in quite well. They were all still decent neighbors, but the hammering and drilling stopped early on. And at most, I would just hear them laughing at something or watching TV. Hugo would leave for work every day, and he would always leave with a smile. He had lost a lot of weight, and he had gotten himself both contact lenses and fitting clothes. He looked good. Not compared to Sandra, but still, he was getting there. I ran into him in the stairwell once when I was throwing out some trash. He was just coming back from a jog chugging some kind of sports drink. Heck, he was in better shape than I was. He smiled at me. Hey, you're in 3B, right? He asked. Sure am, and you're 4B. Hey, that's right, he smiled. Look, if we ever get a little bit too noisy, uh, let me know, all right? Sure, I nodded. It's fine, really, no bother. You guys holding out okay? Yeah, yeah, great, actually. My fiancé got the bug early, so she's got the antibodies. The rest of us just have to wait for the needle. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. We smiled at one another and went our separate ways. Just a few steps later, I had to stop myself. I was too curious. Hey, um, I gotta ask. 
How do you guys all live together in that small space? And doesn't it get crowded? There's always room for family. Hugo smiled and finished his drink. No room too small, no problem too big. And that was the last time that I saw him. I stopped seeing him go to work. His car stayed put in the parking lot all day. I would see Sandra around town alone. Her sisters as well. I noticed her dad throwing up some trash every now and then, but that was it. Hugo just wasn't around anymore. I didn't think too hard about it at first, but in early March, I realized that I hadn't seen him in over a month. His name was still on their door, though. Him and Sandra. And this is when I started to get a bad vibe. I started to make a habit out of taking notes of things that seemed weird or out of place with Sandra and her family. Like their trash bags. They're not just trash bags. They're this big blue mesh type bag that are heat sealed at the top. It looks like something you would use to throw out biohazardous waste from a hospital. They were round and packed to the brim. Like beach balls. And then, there were the nightly excursions. Once the sun had started to set, all the sisters would take Hugo's car and go for a ride. They'd only be gone for a few hours, but they did it consistently for at least four days every week. Mostly on the weekends. But the weirdest thing started in mid-March. For some time, their dad had been throwing out more trash than usual. Sometimes, several times a day. And at night, I would hear these weird noises. It sounded like a mix of an engine and a nature documentary. This low, constant, droning noise. I tried recording it to my bathroom where the sound was clearest, but it doesn't sound like much. I'll play it for you here right now. I would hear that noise at least once a day, sometimes for an hour or two. It wasn't loud, but it is such an unusual sound that you can't help but listen to it. Things escalated gradually. Sometimes I would watch them come back from their drive with duffel bags full of something. At one point, they just had armfuls of branches and firewood. I made notes of all of it, complete with time and date. I was a little bit obsessed. I even went out in the middle of the night to check one of their big blue trash bags. I poked one open and felt this intense dirt smell. The bag was just full of some kind of white ceramic and broken glass. I took a piece of the white stuff back home just to get a closer look. At this point, I still thought that there were just weird people who had done something to Hugo. I was still trying to piece it all together. That's the literal thought that made me realize that this was something else entirely. To piece something together. I gathered the rest of the white ceramics from the bag and pieced it together. Super glue. An egg. An actual egg as large as a football. This was the remaining shell. I didn't know what to think, I just hit it. All of a sudden, I started seeing that family in a whole new light. Branches, boxes, bags full of something smelling of dirt. In my notebook, I just made a single entry. They're nesting. At this point, it was the beginning of April and my job was opening up to having people coming back into work. We were forced to come in at least twice a week to note our hours and to report to our supervisor. It honestly was really nice to get out of the apartment for a little while. Once when I was coming home, I noticed that my front door was open. 
The old lady across from me was standing in the hallway holding one of her cats. Something was going on and the neighbors were antsy. Just as I was about to enter, Sandra stepped out of my apartment. She fixed her brilliant smile at me. That creepy, gorgeous smile. We heard noises, she said. The door was open and your fire alarm was going crazy. Miz, is there? Oh, it's fine, she said. The super opened it to see if there was a fire. I walked up to her and she stepped aside. I gave her a long questioning look. Yeah, fire alarms don't just start by themselves, I said. Where's the super? He got a call. Said the lady across the hall. He looked upset. He did, nodded Sandra. Sounded serious. I'm sorry if you were all worried, I said. But please respect my privacy. You can't just go in. I was just waiting for the super to get back. He forgot to lock your door. Well, now I'm here and I can lock it just fine. Thanks. I closed the door, locked it, and looked over my apartment. My notes were gone. The eggshells were gone. My computer had a hard drive malfunction and there were screws missing from my chassis. Now they knew. The sisters started noticing me more and more. They waved at me every time they took their nightly drive. Their dad gave me a cold look every time he threw out the trash. Now in regular non-blue bags. The sounds at night had stopped. And I never saw them carrying anything inside. I was sure that they had just switched up their schedule, but I wasn't sure. I would run into them more frequently in person. They would accidentally meet me in the stairwell every time that I went outside. Sandra was always polite, but that smile was hiding something. I felt it. And then there was water damage in the ceiling of my bedroom. Something foul-smelling. There was something heavy up there in the ceiling and started to bulge. I called the supervisor about it, but some man kept telling me that. I had to have the papers for an insurance claim before they could fix it. It was BS and they were stalling for time. I think they were trying to cover the fact that the super hadn't been in for at least a month. I'm not stupid. I knew the super didn't have an assistant. The thing is, I hadn't really been paying attention to my other neighbors. The couple downstairs and the college roommates. They had moved out a month earlier. I didn't even think about it. Now I had eight new neighbors and they were all very, very pretty. Six women, two men. All in their early 20s and drop-dead gorgeous. The entire complex was full of them now. That weird sound that I used to hear seemed to come from every direction at night. They weren't even hiding it anymore. They were just carrying all kinds of weird trash up to their apartments. Branches, firewood, plastic. Bag after bag of fertilizer and planting dirt. Last week, there were more moving vans coming Everyone was going outside to help our new, beautiful neighbors carry their stuff inside. I felt trapped in my own apartment and decided once and for all to just leave. But once I stepped into the stairwell, I noticed eight of them looking at me from all over. They were on the floors above, below, and even straight across. Yeah, it seems the old lady with the cats had moved out as well. And then they screamed. They all just screamed in unison. They were like animals trying to scare away a predator. I could hear boxes dropping and footsteps approaching. 
I panicked. I glanced at them and I bursted into a sprint. There were open mouths, screaming, feet running, eyes large and dark, like cats getting ready to pounce on the mouse. I took the fire escape out the back, ran, twisted my ankle and got in my car. I just drove. Something pounded on my back windshield, but I got away. And now I'm here, posting about it. I'm not sure that I should look into this. I just want to get as far away as possible. I don't think that I'm safe yet. I'm staying with my brother. And just the other day he told me that there was a beautiful young woman asking for me while I was at the grocery store. I don't know what this is or what they're doing. All I know is that they're nesting and people are going missing. God, I can't get that noise out of my head. That scream. Those faces. It's 2023. The holidays are behind us and a new year is ahead. There's just one more gift to be given and guess what? It's for you. Give yourself the healthy and delicious gift that keeps on giving all year long. Wild Grain. Wild Grain is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. Wild Grain uses a slow fermentation process that's easier on your belly, lower in sugar and rich in nutrients and antioxidants, unlike typical supermarket bread. Every item bakes in 25 minutes or less as well, which is very convenient. To kick off the year, Wild Grain is offering delicious products such as an ancient green sourdough loaf, a fresh artisan fettuccine pasta. I received both of these items in my Wild Grain box and both were absolutely delicious. They tasted better than the regular bread and pasta that I normally get at the store. Much more fresh. My favorite had to have been the ancient grain sourdough loaf. It was great for sandwiches or just good on its own with some butter or oil, and I felt good after eating it, not weighed down or too full. Plus for every new member, Wild Grain donates 6 meals to the Greater Boston Food Bank, so you can eat good and do good all at the same time. All you have to do is sign up at wildgrain.com creep and choose which type of box you want to receive and how often. It's easy to reschedule, skip and cancel. Plus, for a limited time, you can get $30 off your first box, plus free croissants in every box, when you go to wildgrain.com creep to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box, then $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com creep. That's wildgrain.com creep, or you can use promo code creep at checkout. When the blizzard comes, beware the frostbiters. Written by D.L. Schindler Endings always come too soon. Near the end, Granny was impatient. I couldn't understand the change. The stony old woman was the epitome of patience. Those last days when we still owned the farm were the epitome of how things end. I felt cold and the early morning of the first of the last days. I had to go out to cut firewood, not because it was required of me, rather I was intent on building muscle. 
I wanted to continue to grow in stature and to look like my dad and Uncle Bear. I took on any work that strengthened me. The chill bore into my arms and pressed against my chest. I could see my breath in the glow from the house as I crossed the muddy backyard. I heard a soft swirl of water in Jake's dip, the nearby pond of sudden swamp. A slight fear made me tremble. I had always feared the enormous alligators of a sudden swamp. I had watched them take prey, and while I respected them, my respect was merely a routine fear of them. If you chop now before dawn, you'll wake up Granny. Cousin Boone sat with his father's pipe, loaded with a sour-smelling herb that made his eyes red and his jokes only funny to him. I had tried it once and all they did was made me think the alligators were watching me for hours until it wore off. Just the smell of it made me worry about the return of such insistent paranoia. There's a cold snap coming in, I told Cousin Boone. He smiled weirdly at me and said, I know, let it freeze. It'll put hair on ya. He was grinning stupidly again, thinking that he was hilarious. I shrugged and asked, What about Granny? We need to keep the house warm for her. I feared for the shivering octogenarian. The chill of fear was nearly indistinguishable from the blue air. The sound of these swampies swishly gentling in the pre-dawn sublight hushed us both. I freed the axe from the stump and looked in the direction of Jake's dip. You're gonna go look at the swampies, see if they can see you. They can, you know. Cousin Boone chuckled. It wasn't even a joke. I shrugged. There's something happening down there. You ever hear them this early? How often do they make any noise at all? I lifted him over my shoulder. The porch light was in my eyes as I exhaled visibly. I knew my eyes were glittering in the dark, just like when the swampies watched from the still water. I heard my father's voice from the direction of the outhouse. He had walked up on us silently. There was a stillness, a morbid grave-stepping of the descendants of Granny on her farm. My father said, I'm gonna freeze over. Swampies know already. They always know what's going to happen. How's that, Uncle Wolf? Cousin Boone asked. Ask Wade. He's got the know of them. Reads all them old books. Dad told his nephew, Cousin Boone. Alright, I'll bite. How's a swampy know what's gonna happen? Cousin Boone asked me. I sighed and gently chopped the air with the axe to send my impatience on ahead to where I wanted to tread. I turned after taking a breath and explained. They are the oldest and wisest of creatures. Unchanged while mountains and continents shifted. They are a fallen people, reverted to their atavistic modern metamorphosis, from bipedal over such as sapiens to swampies. While man had merely walked for tens of thousands of years, their dynasties lasted for millions of years. 
their science, indistinguishable from magic to us, altered their descendants for all time. While they languish in development, a proud heritage is still theirs. An ancestor remains watching over them, immortal and godlike, chilled his soul back. Those old books get you pretty high. Cousin Boone told me and then fell over laughing like a loon. His mirth ended with painful coughing, and he swore at me as I walked into the darkness toward the swampies. I had considered that what I had read wasn't true, but it meant that the unbelieving world around me was real and I wasn't ready to accept that yet. I needed the stories to be real. Granny was dying and we could lose the farm. The family would be scattered and I would have nothing. There were answers in those old stories that always said the things that had a magic to them. Magic in endings that said that everything would be alright. I felt an angry tear burn my cheek in the cold air. I stood at the edge of Jake's dip and leaned on the no swimming sign with an alligator skull adorning it on top. The sun was rising through the trees of sudden swamp and trying to shine on Settler Farm. Granny Settler had refused to sell, refused to pay the difference of increased property taxes, and had refused to honor the foreclosure. Our family was in debt and when she was gone, there would be nothing stopping Sheriff Goodwin from forcing us off of our inherited land. He was the dog of a banker man, and his leash was his elected position, his collar the law. I had many fears to contend with. I was afraid of the pain that would form in this empty place in my heart when Granny was gone. I was afraid of the destruction of my family and home. I was afraid of something that was beginning to happen that I had no control over and of the edge of the axe. Not the axe in my hand, but the one in my mind. I knew something far more sinister and horrible was coming. I felt like my life was unraveling into some kind of nightmare fable. The surface of the water was slick and weird, starlit and reflective. I stared, knowing that the swampies were looking at me, and I could feel their eyes on me, and that old sensation of terror made my teeth chatter and my nerves cry out, to take at least one step back from the edge of the liquid darkness. I refused to obey fear. It felt the same as when I was forcing myself to get into the freezing cold bathwater once a week to stay clean. While my body screamed and agonized at the brutal will of my demanding mind, the cold penetration almost caused a mutiny. As I often felt like I would leap out of the icy suds, I felt like I would step backwards to preserve myself. Fear tensed my muscles and I fought it, making myself stand still, commanding the calves of my legs to stop spasming and be still. The effort was distracting, thus I forgot the torment of my heavy fears. I was lost in the light as it found its way through the lingering night of sudden swamp. It was sunlight despite the misty coolness of it and its shifting form. As I stared, 
I could forget everything the world knew and just remember what I knew. The Hour of Magic Jody Sobek, tell me how the axe comes. I am the axe man. I prayed to a pagan god, the only god that I was sure cared about anything. I doubted that it cared about me or the settler farm. Did it at least care about a sudden swamp? I daydreamed of a rock untread by human foot, the rock within the swamp. Jode Sobek lived there still in memory, hidden in a cave that was all that was left of an antediluvian temple. If it was real, I would find it, the answer to my prayers and my questions. I worried it was just my imagination that maybe I was starting to crack. Wade? Dad had come to find me. The tenderness in his voice could only mean one thing. I held my hand up to him, gesturing clearly enough that I understood without another word. I listened as he walked away. The silence of Settler Farm was finally gone. As I wept, I knew the Swampies were watching me. It felt like the financial vultures were somehow to blame. I wanted revenge on them and told myself that the Swampies agreed with me. An evil fog blurred my vision and my tears scalded my cheeks, leaving stains on my face where they froze and cut my skin. I dropped the axe and picked it back up. I whispered darkly, angry and bereaved, afraid of the change. I am the axe man. And then I went back up to the farmhouse to say goodbye. As I strode past the chopping stump, I thunked the blade without effort and it stuck deep. The handle trembled and said, I am the axe. Inside the farmhouse, time had moved inexorably without me. The magic had it kept me away while things had developed. I interrupted the moment, a talent that I shared with Uncle Bear. Get off my property. Dad was telling Bankerman in his suit wearing thugs with their briefcases. It was good that I had left the axe asleep. I saw weapons in their hands, as deadly as an axe in the hands of a berserk young man that spent as much time building a body as he did reading. I had read Grandfather's entire collection of books and I knew the words by heart. My heart was beating with rage and my heart was broken. Dad had sounded angry and impotent as he had addressed the financial vultures. When he saw my tear-burned face, sweater stretched over log-tossing bulk, the look of careless and violated fury in my eyes, he said in a way that was so genuine that they actually did what he said. Y'all better go and come back later. That's my son Wade. He needs to be alone to say goodbye. Her body hasn't even gotten cold yet. Just go. We'll come back tomorrow. Bankerman looked at me and despite his arrogance and senselessness, he knew that I would bite, literally. I watched them go, restraining my feet from letting me near them. I wanted to tear their arms off and bludgeon them all to death with their briefcases, but instead I let them escape. I am the Axe Man.
I could hear myself saying. Somehow the thought of chopping wood calmed me down a little bit. You can't do that, Wade. It'll make things worse. I heard Dad saying. He had said more, but I wasn't listening. Do what? I hesitated. Had I said that I was going to kill them? Intimidate them. Don't intimidate them. It's bad enough as it is. They can make things really bad for us. How could they make it worse? We're being evicted from our home, Dad. Granny's dead. I don't even know if the cave is real or how to find it. I was talking out loud and saying things that he didn't understand when I had mentioned the cave. Just go say goodnight to her. Dad lowered his voice, realizing that he was scolding me. You mean goodbye? I lifted my hand the way that I did when I wanted to end the conversation. Dad slapped my hand back down and said, Now isn't the time. We need to stick together. Dad's eyes were welling up with tears. I didn't know that he could cry. It hurt a lot to see him about to. I apologized, something that I had never done before. I wasn't good at it. Freaking sorry, Dad. Jesus. I almost stuttered. I left him to go hide his pain and I went to go shed mine. I walked through the house, the open doors and windows making it as cold as the winter morning. There was a feeling of desolation and fear. I was afraid of the death in me that would happen when I met her dad. I was about to die inside. I went into her room and found her stiff carcass under a thick blanket. Her face was contorted and cruel, her eyes staring horribly. There was a stench already and I kind of appreciated it. It made it easier to see that I was just looking at her dried up old body. She was gone and all I was looking at was a spent shedding. Granny was in a higher and more dignified place. Her bones weren't here, just the coil of her life. Death had done good work, making sure that there was nothing worth worrying about, looking at her wasted remnant. A strange thought occurred to me. The best thing to do would be to chop her up with the axe and put her pieces in the wheelbarrow and take them to Jake's death. They would never be able to pry her from her land, not without contending with the swampies. By the time they caught them all, she would be digested in a part of them, a part of the swamp, and then they would have to deal with it chilled so back. I smiled, imagining the gods' wrath on the financial vultures. What's so funny? Cousin Boone asked me. I hadn't even noticed that he was sitting in the corner in a rocking chair, in uncharacteristic reverence. He sounded desperate to break free from the pale that hit its grip on him, choking the humor from him. I was thinking that I should bury her in sudden swamp. I admitted, hoping that he would find it amusing. You should. Why would it even matter? What are they going to do about it? None of this matters. Nobody cares about anything that happens here. Nothing matters. Not anymore. Cousin Boone sounded oddly maudlin. I looked at him and realized that he was also in great pain. Granny's death had killed his happiness. 
He had died inside. I had died inside. And Dad was dying in some dark and lonely place. We were all dead inside, not the way that Granny was dead, but in a way that somehow felt the same. The entry of Santa Claus interrupted the moment. Uncle Bear, I stepped aside. Watching a Santa kneeling beside her bed was jarring and disturbing. Uncle Bear was still wearing the entire impersonation, bringing some joy to the mall owned by Banker Man. Everything in the county was owned by Banker Man, except for Settler Farm. He started crying loudly, letting his anguish out. Cousin Boone and I couldn't stand to watch his suffering and so, we left him to die inside alone. A record-breaking blizzard is coming in, said the weatherman on the news. Dad was watching television. I had forgotten that we had even owned one. It was an antique with an antenna on it and a compatibility box attached. The Swampies knew it before the scientists. Dad told us as we sat with them. Look, I pointed to the four-day forecast. It'll freeze tonight. Maybe that will slow down Banker Man, Cousin Boone said. Dad and I ignored him and kept talking about the weather until there weren't anything else to say. A disheveled and distraught Santa came out of Granny's room. He looked insane with the costume and the morning. I looked away as Uncle Bear and dragged himself around, a huge man looking pathetic and interrupting the moment. Why don't we have anything to drink? He asked. This was a dry house. Granny's rules. Dad reminded him. Jesus wept and we can't drink our tears. Uncle Bear sniffed. Take that stuff off, Dad. You're creeping me out. Cousin Boone requested. Uncle Bear ignored him. Request denied. The television went to static and we all just kind of sat there and stared at it. Outside, we could see that it had started snowing. It began to get very cold in the house and I got up and got my coat. When I came back, all three of the men were asleep. I threw blankets over all of them and I went back to reconsider my plan to hack apart Granny with an axe and toss the parts to the Swampies. It made me feel better to think that way. Her gaping mouth and wide eyes looked like something out of a horror movie. I lay down next to her, ignoring the nauseating sting. I opened my eyes, awakened by the sound of vehicles arriving. Glancing outside, I saw Sheriff Goodwin and Deputy Frank, banker man and the assorted business suit thugs with briefcases. With a shotgun skeptic, Sheriff Goodwin led them through the falling snow to the last stand of a settler farm. They hadn't brought enough guns. Things were going to get ugly, I decided. There was no way that I was going to leave quietly, and I doubted my kin felt any different. Come on out here, settler boys. No need for things to get uncivilized. Time's up. Sheriff Goodwin said, the last thing that he would ever say in his confident and boastful sounding drawl. There was a kind of calmness, a sort of calm before the storm. A literal storm was blowing in. 
my head was full of visions of carnage and terror. This is it. There's no more running from it, I told myself. Hades howled as a white wind, bringing the flurry and frost. The record-breaking blizzard arrived and it hit Settler Farm with all of its winter wrath. It wasn't going to stop until it was all over. I felt the fear of the axe edge in my mind. I am the axe man, I whispered, unable to hear the words. I went through the dark house, leaving the dead body of the old woman where I had slept beside her. Deputy Frank was counting down from some number and nearing blast off. I heard Uncle Bear's double barrel click shut audibly in some blackened corridor of the creaking old house. I had no idea where Dad was until I heard the sputter of a chainsaw. I almost laughed, hoping that he had put on his ski mask with the eight tiny reindeer pulling the sleigh, stitched to it lovingly by Mom. I wondered if her and Granny were reunited in whatever happens after death. Out back, I found the axe still buried in the stomp. I ran my hand across its handle and remembered what it had told me earlier. You are the axe. The front door was broken open and Sheriff Goodwin and Deputy Frank intruded in our home without our permission. We didn't care about their warrants or eviction notices or any of their self-appointed authority. Granny was gone and we were untethered. We wouldn't be unhomed by godless men. They found Cousin Boone and he came at them with his bowie knife. Sheriff Goodwin managed to take him down with the butt of his shotgun and they wrestled him down and put handcuffs on him. They had to leave him under the static of the television as he growled and raged like a madman. He was the calm one of the settler boys. There were screams from out front as dad chased these suit-wearing thugs around with a running chainsaw. When they fell, their screams of terror became blood-curdling, as dad gave them awful wounds where they lay. I could visualize the men in black with their hands, fingers, wrists, and arms up in the air defensively as they lay in their bag. The spinning chain blade could tear through a fallen log with minimal effort, and it would make short work of the limbs of fallen men. I really hoped he was wearing that Christmas ski mask. After freeing the axe, I went back into the house. The sheriff and his deputy would have to go back out to protect the bureaucrats. I found Cousin Boone where they had left him and saw that he was pulling his legs up through the handcuffs. A neat trick that got his cuffed hand out in front of him. I felt horrific fear as I heard gunshots out front. I wanted to run out to help dad, but I made myself stand there and not run out. I would get shot doing that. It was not the time to panic, even though I felt enough fear to lose control. I forced my feet to obey me and I stood my ground. Get up, I told Cousin Boone. I felt some relief as I heard the chainsaw still running and a variety of screams from out front. You shot me, you hick sheriff. One of the thugs in suits was yelling. He couldn't be shot that bad if he was complaining about it like a baby. Get in the car, it's a war zone. Banker man seemed to be addressing his wounded assistant. The wind was howling louder and a tree branch came down and broke a window. 
Cousin Boom put his chain atop the coffee table in the living room, and I used the axe on it. It took me two swings to break both the chain and the table. You okay? I asked Cousin Boone. He got up and got his knife. I'm gonna gut that sheriff, he snarled. No, they see you free and they'll just shoot you. Come with me. I collected my mind. We left the farmhouse behind and went down to Jake's dip. The water was frozen solid. I walked out onto it heading to Sudden Swamp. The blizzard raged around me. That can't be safe to walk on. Cousin Boone called behind me. I was terrified and I knew that he was right, but it was our best move. Seeing my determination to go into the swamp, he followed me out onto the creaking ice. All around us, these snouts of these swampies were sticking out of the ice. The alligators were sleepy and breathing from under the water, their massive bodies under the ice. Sudden Swamp's alligators are the largest in the whole world, total freaks of nature. What are they doing? Cousin Boone asked, creeped out by the alligator snouts sticking out of the ice all around us. Brumation, I told him. It's like they're hibernating, one of their survival strategies. They're classic survivors. I told him, my voice shaking from the fear and cold. What are we doing? Cousin Boone asked me. There's a cave in the swamp. I have to find it. The answers are there, I told him. This is crazy. I'm going back. Dad and Uncle Wolf need our help. You're not going to let them fight those trespassers alone, are you? Cousin Boone chastised. I kept walking and left him behind. He turned back thinking that violence was the answer. I didn't know what the answer was, but I doubted that it was to be found in the horror of battle. I heard more gunshots from the farm. The blizzard in the distance muffled their unmistakable thunder. The boom of the double barrel sounded. I knew that Uncle Bear had popped off from somewhere in the house, still dressed as Santa, and fired both barrels into somebody's face. I finished crossing Jake's dive, walking on the water past these swampies as they slept. I reached a sudden swamp and went in, carrying my axe and wearing a warm coat. There were more swampies all around. The whole place was infested with alligators. I didn't know where I was going. I was afraid of what I would find. I used my fear as a compass, telling my feet to walk upon the weak ice in whatever direction terrified me the most. How easy it would be to go back to the farm and fight with my kinsmen against the invaders. I knew that knowing the answers would be far worse than getting shot by Sheriff Goodwin and watching the settler boys die, red upon the snow. Nothing could be worse than the answers. And yet some fear far deeper and colder insisted that I was somehow even more afraid to die without knowing the truth. Was the cave real? Was anything? The blackened tear streaks on my face were a comforting pain, telling me that I was immediately alive. Existential dread was much harder to gauge, as it shifted from one footstep to the next. I seek your temple. 
My prayer held whatever magic was left in this world. The blizzard quieted when I arrived. I was in the heart of Sudden Swamp and there was a twisted and rocky island, covered in dead vines and the grasping branches of sinister looking trees. I stared, an empty feeling of morbid fascination holding me on the ice that I stood on. I walked off of the ice and onto a block of solid rock. I stood there in the calm of the storm, snow drifting around me, and I held the axe like it could defend me from the terrors within. There is a cave used exclusively by alligators and full of bones and rotting meat. I crawled on there and into that darkness. My mind raced with the sensation of forcing myself into the cold water, forcing myself past the fear, making myself move despite feeling petrified and wanting to jump out. There was no going back. The cave was real. Inside the cave, I found a structure, the walls glowing unnaturally so that I could finally see. The swampies didn't come so far inside and there were no more fresh bones. I looked around and saw that where I stood was the heart of the temple, and that was all that was left of it after millions of years. The air was dry and barely breathable, as though the oxygen were too old for my mortal lungs. The temperature was stable and unchanging, although cool that felt warm compared to the swamp. I looked around and realized that there was no light. I was seen from memory. A strange a sensation of being able to see without seeing. Like I just knew what I was looking at. Even though the artificial light had no illumination. All of it was crafted. The stone, the light, and even the air that I was breathing. It was the ancient magic of the crocodile gods. I have come for answers, Chode Sobak, I spoke. As I said the words, I was understood, as though my human language were so simple that it could easily be deciphered. What heard me I didn't understand. Perhaps it was the structure, or perhaps it was the god of the swampies. It knew all about me and had let me come, allowed my entry, and then it gave me the answers. Like hieroglyphics, the images swam in my head. At first, I was terrified to have thoughts that were not mine moving around inside of my mind. When I fought the urge to reject them and paid attention, I began to understand the moving images. The brain waves in my head shifted to what are now known as alpha waves, and it felt like I was watching a cartoon. A very long and scary cartoon. I was sweating despite the chill. Time seemed to be holding still and yet, I was vaguely aware that as centuries and millennia of crocodile history flashed behind my eyes, that it was only a few hours in the cave. I shook and trembled as I could not contain even one more day of their world in my overflowing mind. It was a terrifying experience. Nothing about their world was good or peaceful. Their atrocities and wickedness made my problems seem like child's play. I knew the greater fear of knowledge that I had feared I would know. A kind of madness eased me along as I meekly thanked Jody Sobek for the answers. I left the cave and found that evening was approaching. 
The thin ice was already melting and some of the swampies were starting to thaw back out. I saw their snouts opening and closing as they woke up hungry. I could hear their thoughts, images of what they saw and heard and sensed and dreamed. I had become a part of their world. When I left Settler Farm, I would take them all with me. Ghosts, reptilian haunts, and nightmares for answers. When the swamp was all gone, it would still be a part of me. I feared the state that I was in, knowing that I was forever changed. I knew the answers, I knew the truth. The truth was eternal dread. When I reached the farmhouse, I saw that it was burning down. I wandered around with the axe in my hand, my face looking like I had running mascara from the frostbite from my tears. I found where Uncle Bear had fallen, dressed as Santa and wielding a double barrel shotgun. He had battled the intruders to the death. A burning Santa had come running out of the farmhouse and died face down in the snow with bullet holes in his back. I found Cousin Boo next. He had died atop Deputy Frank, whom he had stabbed repeatedly with his enormous razor-sharp hunting knife. Somebody shot him and he fell dead atop the cop. I went out front and found that nobody had escaped. All around were the fallen thugs in suits ablazed by the chainsaw and in pieces. Dad was breathing his last, leaning on the snow-chained wheel of the sheriff's truck as the red and blue lights flashed in the falling snow. The blizzard was long gone and the cold air had helped to keep Dad alive for me. I went to him and lifted his Christmas ski mask that Mom had made for him. Did we get them all? Pretty much, I told him. He coughed out some blood and looked up at me. You didn't fight. I found the cave, I told him. He nodded like it meant something to him, although he had no idea what I was talking about. Good man, I'm proud of you. This party was stupid anyway, Dad told me. Behind me, our house was burning down, and his brother and nephew were dead. I told him. It wasn't a party, Dad. That's because there's no booze. Dad chuckled like Cousin Boone when he thought he was being funny. The laugh turned into a cough and then he died. I love you, Dad. I told him and let him go. I heard the cock of his shotgun behind me and the voice of Sheriff Goodwin say, Drop the axe, son. Let's end this thing on a peaceful note. I put my empty hands in the air and he cuffed me. You tell me where Bankerman is and don't make sure you aren't blamed for this whole mess. Sound fair? He told me from behind with a loaded shotgun pointed at my head while I was in handcuffs. I felt a kind of horrified realization that I knew where he was. Shivering, I said. Above me he is, on the ice. I am so hungry. I channeled the thoughts of the Swampies, translating them. On the ice? He's down at Jake's dive. Sheriff Goodwin asked. Yes, and I knew that I was right. What's that idiot doing there? Come on, march in front of me. Try anything and I'll blow your head clean off. You get it, son? Sheriff Goodwin spoke. I said nothing and started leading the way around the burning house towards Jake's dive. 
We stopped at the no swimming sign with the alligator skull on top of it. We saw a banker man out on the ice, trapped. The ice was breaking apart all around him, and swampies in various stages of wakefulness were poking their snouts out of the ice. Help me, you idiots! He screamed to us. I felt my hands get unlocked. Go out there and get him or I'll shoot you dead boy. Sheriff Goodwin pushed me with the barrel of his shotgun on my back. It was then that my fears had reached their highest and most horrified state. Panic made me stand there at the water's edge, seeing the swampies getting ready to take prey. I felt like they were all watching me. I could hear Cousin Boone's ghost saying, None of it matters. I forced my feet to move, one step and then another. I was approaching Banker Man, forced to come out out of the ice to save him from his own stupidity. The swampies were ready to take him as the ice broke under him with a splash. There was nothing that I could do as he plunged into the darkness to be drowned by hungry crocodilians. Breakfast in bed. I said their thoughts out loud, translated. I started back toward the shore and felt the ice snap under me. I went in. The freezing cold water instantly chilled me. I could see through the eyes of the swampies as they closed in on me. My own eyes closed in reflex to the splash. I was able to push up through the ice near the shore, panic gripping me hysterically. I gasped for air and saw the flash and heard the thunder of Sheriff Goodwin's shotgun. Hurry, the gators are coming. As I blinked and tried to walk to shore in waist-deep water, I could see myself from their perspective as they closed in for the kill. I wasn't going to make it. Sheriff Goodwin was shooting at them as they neared me, but they ignored the blast unharmed. You matter. I heard the voice of Childe Sobek telling me. The voice was like the hieroglyphs, a wordless thought, an image imbued with meaning. The swampies obeyed their god and they let me go. I got out of the water, drenched and shivering. Sheriff Goodwin just stared at me in amazement. You got balls, kid, holy cow. I'm freezing. I tried to say, my lips turning blue. I stripped from my wet clothing and stood in the frosty air. Sheriff Goodwin put his coat over my shoulders and then put me in handcuffs out front. I was in no shape to give him any trouble, he decided. Yeah, come on. Let's get you arrested and in a warm blanket. Sheriff Goodwin took me back up to his vehicle. He never bothered to arrest me and I was never charged with anything. Instead, I was commended for trying to save a banker man. I was released from jail with scars and memories and a gift from my God. When things end, when they truly end, something continues. Death is just an ending, but it isn't all that there is. I know the answers now and I live in constant fear of realizing them. Knowing what happens after the end is the most terrifying thing of all. For me, for now, I'm still answering with patience to the end. 
Before we get into the next video, I just wanted to talk about another one of our sponsors, Upside. Rising costs have us all thinking about different ways to cut back. Personally, I've had to cut back on eating out and going out with friends. It could be that, driving less or buying less from the grocery store. We can all agree that there's nothing fun about less. So that's why I started using Upside. I don't have to cut back on the things that I enjoy because I earn cash back on essentials. Upside is an incredible app for anyone who buys gas, groceries, or eats out. With Upside, I don't have to cut back because I get cash back on every purchase. And with that, I'm able to spend that extra cash on a coffee to treat myself. Download the free Upside app to get started. I found the app super easy and convenient to use. Just use my promo code Mr. Creeps and get $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more. Next, claim an offer for whatever you're buying on Upside. Check in at the business and pay as you would with a credit or debit card and you get paid. You can earn three times more cash back with Upside in comparison to credit card rewards or loyalty programs, which is a pretty good deal. Download the free Upside app and use promo code MrCreeps to get $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more. Again, that's $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more using promo code MrCreeps. On Christmas, I was tasked with hunting down the Nocturnals. Written by Mr. Mills of 45. Site 12, December 23rd, 2021. I walked through the Site 12 facility, which had been sparsely decorated with a bunch of Christmas-themed trinkets. It wasn't much, a fake tree here and some lights there, but it's sheer more than you would have gotten under Ted Bowser's management. That guy was like a real-life Scrooge. He thought that Christmas time always took away productivity and operations. Go figure. Nonetheless, I make it to the room that I'm looking for. The office of the current director of operations, Jennifer White. You wanted to see me? I asked, poking my head inside as Jennifer sat at her desk, staring at piles of paperwork. I did. Come on in, Ron. She replies, sounding a bit less cold than usual. It sounds like you're feeling good. Holiday season cheering you up. A joke. Prompting her to nod her head sarcastically. Maybe it would if I wasn't in here 12 hours a day. But anyway, I've got something for you. She proclaims, reaching under the desk and retrieving a black binder without any markings or labels on it. After opening it up, she turns around, allowing me to see the contents within. One of which was a picture that I recognized. A picture that she had shown me months back after a data recovery mission to a certain bottomless leg. A long story for another time. The surrounding environment depicted in the photo was what looked to be a dark basement with rusted pipes running along the walls and ceiling. At the end of the room, there were multiple dark pitch black and shadowy human figures with pairs of glowing red dots where their eyes should have been. The Nocturnals. Mua showed me this one before, I said. I know, but it's become relevant again. You see, there's been more than seven reports of missing persons cases lately. She states, matter-of-factly, 
Well, that seems pretty standard to hear about in this job. Now when all these said missing people have all disappeared from one building in a matter of days. I raise an eyebrow, now genuinely curious about what she was referring to. The Landerson Mall closed down just a few days ago to avoid any more incidents. Only us and the federal government are aware of the true details. Even the local police are in the dark about the truth. She pauses for a second. Anyway, from what my superiors have shown me, the nocturnals are the ones to blame. What exactly did they show you? I can't share most of it with you, but there's a video that was posted to the internet by a friend of one of the missing people. We had the IT team scrub all traces of it from the web before it had gained any notable traction, but I'm sure that it's still out there somewhere. I'm going to have you help me present this in the pre-mission briefing. Jennifer then moves her mouse around as she stares at her monitor, clicking on a few things and then reaching over and turning the monitor so the screen is facing me. It displayed an mp4 video file and the process of being opened. After said file finishes loading, it expands into a video player display but the actual footage it was in the center of the screen in a rectangular formation, giving away the fact that it had been recorded on a smartphone, which is about what I had expected. The location depicted the footage was at the parking lot of the mall, filled to the brim with cars, yet seemingly empty when it came to any actual people. The night sky left an ominous darkness over the area, the person recording who I had deduced to be male was huffing intensely like he had just got done running a marathon. He gets to the end of the mall's parking lot with the camera now looking out onto the empty highway and then suddenly shifts 180 degrees now back to focusing on the mall in the parking lot. In between some of the parked cars were the nocturnals. They stood there, staring at the camera ominously with their red, glowing eyes. What are you people? What did you do to Katie? Shouts the supposed cameraman. But he gets nothing in response except the continuous and unsettling stares of the nocturnals that were sizing him up. The cameraman then begins to swear and curse frantically, the camera movements now becoming shaky and unstable as the nocturnals begin to slowly move forward, right in the direction of the cameraman himself. This is not your hour, Leonard. Came a supernaturally distorted mix of voices, all of them unifying to make one booming and echo-heavy speech. The cameraman then shrieked and the camera shift toward the highway once again as it suddenly started to become larger in the frame indicating the cameraman was moving towards it at high speed. This only lasted for a few seconds before the video was abruptly cut off, leaving the screen drenched in black. Alright, I'm gonna go ahead and take a wild guess that these things can't be taken down with bullets or grenades. I remarked, much to Jennifer's annoyance. No, listen, I haven't had to deal with these things before. Last time this particular site did was under Ted. Now if all the information from the mission report files is true, light-based weaponry will be effective in taking these things down. 
We tried contacting Isabella Davis for extra help as well, but it seems that she's gone rogue. Who is that exactly? It's a bit hard to explain in a way that sounds logical. She was a former agent with us and according to some old paperwork, there were some classified tests and experiments done on her during a time where the nocturnals were a bit more of an issue from previous leadership. To keep a long story short, she became one of them and inherited all of their abilities, while also retaining a human consciousness and thought process. I exhaled, letting all the information sink in for a few moments. That sounds like some pretty sensitive info. Can I ask why you're sharing it with me? This isn't how our usual meetings go. Jennifer smirks, which again is unlike her. But then she cups her hands together, placing them on her desk and taking a deep breath. Well, I've been authorized to give you a promotion, Ron, to Assistant Director of Operations, but I will only do it on the basis that this mission is successful. You have proven yourself useful over all the years you've been with the agency, and while you and I have only been personally working together for a short time, your file is impressive and plus. It'll look good to my bosses as well, training and acquiring new leadership. It's been a while since a site in the zone has had an assistant DO. I sat there in silence at first, unsure of how to take such a revelation. I had been so invested in my position as a mission supervisor that I hadn't taken the time to consider anything higher up. After everything from battling a ruthless subject at 16A in another universe to taking on creatures at a bottomless lake, any plans to climb my way up the ladder hadn't been seriously pondered. If I go up, who replaces me? I ask. That would be Agent Alex. He was only 15 when he was first recruited over at Site 7. He's going to be transferring here in a few months. But due to staffing shortages, he's going to be here for the next few days in order to help us out. He's got a bit of an unusual past, but the less said on that for now, the better. I'll be honest, when I say those last two sentences, it piqued my curiosity. But I didn't want to push my luck with how good a mood Jennifer was in by probing her about it. Can I have some time to think it over after the mission? Yes, Jennifer retorts. But I need an answer from you in writing within the next two weeks. Otherwise, my supervisors will force me to revoke the offer. Fair enough. I reply without much flair. The rest of the day goes as usual. We gathered the team and prepared all the material needed for the briefing. Jennifer filled me in personally on a few more pieces of info that I was meant to keep under wraps and not to reveal to the rest of the team. I also went ahead and combed through all the files and paperwork that Jennifer had authorized me to regarding the nocturnals. And it was pretty much what I had expected. They can control darkness. They convert regular humans into a nocturnal if they catch them. Yada yada yada. The next day, Jennifer and I led the briefing to Agents Alex Carter, Melody, Terrence, and finally Garrett. Nothing occurred that was very different than a typical mission briefing, but afterward, we all loaded up supplies in the transport truck, and we headed out to the mall. Even without them saying anything, 
there was an obvious disconnect between Carter, Garrett, and Alex. While Carter and Garrett were apparently childhood friends from what I had heard, Alex was sort of the odd one out, on a personal level at least. If we can survive the ground grabber, then we can survive some angry shadows, blurted Garrett, prompting a shared chuckle between him and Carter. The heck is a ground grabber? Alex grilled, looking at the other two men with genuine confusion. Uh, something that we dealt with as kids before we joined, or were forced to anyway, Carter replied. So this ground grabber did what exactly? Just hit underneath the floors or something? Snatched you up through your brand new wood tiles. Alex rebuts sarcastically. What exactly got you in here, Mr. Tough Guy? Garrett interrogated. Something that would make the both of you crap your pants and tuck your tails between your legs. Hey, I snap, causing the three of them to go silent. That's enough, it's almost Christmas, so let's cool it with the arguing. In all honesty, part of me was glad that I had an excuse to end their juvenile bickering. But luckily, there weren't any more incidents on the way, as we arrived at the location just a minute later. It wasn't far from Site 12 at all. We all made sure that our gear was loaded up and ready to go. After exiting the transport truck, I and the rest of the team noticed the highway on which we had to come down and it was eerily empty which was definitely alarming considering that it was just before Christmas Eve. Not a car in sight. Alex blurts as he grips his weapon, that being a specially designed giant flashlight that weighed over 15 pounds. We pretty much had to carry the things like there were miniguns. They were powerful enough to light up a football field and a half when you would turn the adjustable knob all the way up. The brightness level was more than enough to blind a man and then some. It was a big change of pace from the typical firearms and weaponry that we usually brought along on operations. Treat that thing like a gun when it comes to pointing it at people, Melody informed Garrett. Even on the lowest setting, it's enough to cause temporary blindness for up to 48 hours if the beam makes direct contact with your eyes. Noted. Garrett rebuts, seemingly unfazed by what she had just said. I would take it seriously if I were you guys, Terrence interjects. We can't afford one of you losing a vital sense on an operation like this, because you know what that means. Carter and Garrett both roll their eyes, prompting an unfriendly glance from Alex. I'll make sure to be careful, he says, giving Melody, Terrence, and I a nod of respectful acknowledgement earning him a look of confusion from both Garrett and Carter. Alright, let's move forward. Keep your lights off for now. Do not turn them on until I give the okay, you understand? I grilled. Everyone gave me a nod in response. So I had us all form up and begin moving into the parking lot of the mall. It looked pretty much identical to how it did in the video footage, with a much more noticeable lack of vehicles present which made sense, seeing as it had been closed for days now to avoid any more potential incidents. I'm sure the place was already drowning in lawsuits. Jennifer had told me that a few of the people who had gone missing inside the mall were kids, so it's safe to say that there were going to be some upset parents. 
It was eerily quiet in the parking lot. Like the kind of quiet people warn you about when you're in a forest, you know that type. The whole, if you're in the woods and everything goes silent, it means that there's a predator nearby. That kind of thing. But in a place like this, with a parking lot that was only a few dozen feet from a main highway, something clearly didn't add up. I knew that we weren't alone and that it was only a matter of when the nocturnos would reveal themselves. I figured that for now, it would be best to let Jennifer and company know that we had arrived without incident. This is Angel Ron, we've made it to the location. So far no signs of any cryptid activity have been detected. Got it. Just keep moving forward and keep us posted. Jennifer replied as my radio crackled to life. Usually on these missions, we possessed visor cameras that would allow whoever was back at the site to see what we could see through a live video feed. But Jennifer had informed that we would have to go without them this time and stick with just radios, due to the fact that there had been too many instances of the Nocturnals manipulated and destroying visual equipment specifically. Thus, it was deemed a lost risk and those things weren't exactly cheap to keep acquiring. I'm surprised the kid in the video even managed to get his footage online after he had escaped. About halfway through the parking lot, I froze, noticing something that caught my eye off in the distance. I squinted and leaned forward, and it quickly became clear as to what it was. Between the gap of a part green sedan and a black SUV, were two red glowing circles about the size of golf balls that pierced through the darkness. And due to the source of said circles being right in front of a black object, they gave off the appearance as if they were floating. Stop, all of you. I whisper shouted to the rest of the team, prompting them to seize movement as they laid eyes upon the same thing. I kept my eyes focused on the dots while radioed in Jennifer. Activity spotted, one at least. There's probably more in the area that we haven't seen yet. Be careful, she replies. There is most likely more. Make sure the team stays on high alert. I grip my light, getting my finger ready on the brightness adjustment slider as I feel the tap on my shoulder, only to turn around and find Carter kneeling there with a look of terror on his face. Hey, uh, boss man, might want to take a look behind us. He says, his tone urgent but hushed. Then I do exactly that, turning around to find our group surrounded and being looked upon by several of the nocturnals, with some being a few dozen feet behind us, and another handful being in each of our sides at about the same distance away. They stared us all down, their glowing red eyes fixated on our every move. None of them inched forward to attack, well not yet anyway. I turned my head to the rest of the team, all of them harboring expressions of extreme concern. Get your lights ready, but don't turn them on just yet. We need to wait for the right moment. If we get too aggressive right off the bat, they'll come at us all at once. I whispered, signaling for everyone to calmly and quietly get into a circle formation, taking extra caution to make sure that we didn't set these things off. They were intelligent and powerful creatures. Their ability to work in unison and add their victims to their ranks 
it was unlike anything that I had encountered in the past beforehand. These beings were the first in a long time to truly terrify me, and I had only been in direct contact with them for a matter of minutes. But possessing the knowledge that I did, it didn't help to comfort me. I knew right off the bat that this mission would be a test of my leadership abilities. After another several rounds of the standoff between us and the Nocturnals, three of them from behind began to levitate and float towards us, their menacing shadow bodies cutting through the wind in a horrifically elegant way. The person facing this particular group most directly was Melody, who raised her light with a forceful grunt and reached over to the adjustment slider and dragged it forward, the light explosively bursting out and illuminating nearly everything in her field of view. Her attackers, without an audible cry, moan or any other verbal sign of agony, shuddered and immediately retreated backward at the sudden extreme illumination, demonstrating that the lights were just as effective as predicted. All of us had crap-eating grins on our faces, as for once, we felt in control on one of these missions. It was a euphoria that was nice, but it wouldn't last for very long. Suddenly, all the surrounding nocturnals began to close in on us, slowly levitating forward just as the other ones had, floating toward us in this chillingly relentless manner, like they were just ghostly terminators. Alex, Carter, keep your lights off. Garrett, Terrence, and I will turn them on. I shouted as there is no longer a reason to keep quiet. What? Why? Carter blurted, prompting me to give him a stern look. We can't overdo it and risk damaging our own eyes. I rebutted with a slight snarl. Terrence, Garrett, Carter, and I all switched our lights on. The combined power of the brightness and light blue hue of it all drowning the parking lot, and by extension, the nocturnals in this almost beautiful ocean-like wave of light. The nocturnals that had come too close were simply disintegrated. It was like watching water evaporate, and there was nothing more of them where they went, their forms simply being erased and never to be seen again. Never had it this easy before, Terrence cheered. A smirk formed on his face as he took one step forward with his light in hand. Hey, easy, I called out. We gotta make sure we stay in formation. Hey, we got this, boss man. Look, Carter adds. At this point, we had almost cleared the entire parking lot. With a few more good waves of our lights and simply standing our ground, we had maintained control of the situation. The few remaining nocturnals all staying put, not wanting to suffer the same fate as their shadowy comrades. So in turn, Terrence was right. But it wasn't like him to get cocky, and it kind of worried me. Meanwhile, we still had to go inside and clear out the actual mall itself. Jennifer had informed me that in order to get rid of a nocturnal infestation, if you will, you need to either destroy the building they were residing in and near itself, or kill every single nocturnal in the area. Which would seem nearly impossible, but with these things, it was much more realistic. But that wasn't to say they weren't still dangerous. They were, no matter how much firepower that we had against them. The few nocturnals who had survived the initial encounter retreated into the darkness of the surrounding area, 
presumably heading back to the mall to regroup with all the other ones inside. Once I had assessed that the coast was clear, I turned my attention back to the team. Alright, lights off guys. I announce, prompting everyone with the command applied to, to reach down and adjust their sliders and switch their lights off, leaving the parking lot once again back in an eerie dim light. Nothing but the few lights that were still on inside of the mall, illuminating our path. Alright, I began. It seems like we've cleared them out for now, but there will still be plenty more. Make sure that you keep all your heads on straight and don't get too cocky. We still don't know the full potential of what these things are capable of. So, let's move on and head inside. After my little announcement, I radioed back to Jennifer and informed her of what went down. She seemed to be genuinely enthusiastic. Going on a whole positive tangent about how all the money spent on upgrading the light weapons seemed to be paying off. We all pressed forward as a group. I had the younger guys keeping an eye on her surroundings, while Terrence, Melody, and I maintained a straight line of sight. Every single angle was worth watching when you were up against something like this. Looking up toward the second floor windows of the mall, I could see that they were suddenly drenched in darkness. Darkness that was only alleviated by the glowing red eyes of the nocturnals that stood on the other side, staring our group down with a malicious gaze. I counted up all the pairs of eyes to see how many were just in the windows alone. It came out to be just over a dozen when I was finished, which wasn't much more than we had taken out in the parking lot. The difference is, we were in a much less confined space than we would be in there. One of us could easily get cornered or caught off guard if they weren't paying attention. We made it to the outside portion of the main entrance of the mall. I scanned the building now that I was up close for the most part. It was in decent shape other than some noticeable cracks and dents in the building material, which was to be expected. It wasn't a very old building, and it had only been neglected for a matter of a few days. Alright, this is where we really have to watch our backs. We're going right into the nest, and if we don't coordinate and follow orders, then this could end very badly for all of us. I say, getting the team's attention on me, as I had radioed back to Jennifer. We can take these things, it'll be a piece of cake. Alex speaks up, attempting to boost morale. But his efforts seem to turn Garrett's expression sour. Yeah, stroke your ego a little bit harder while you're at it. He mutters under his breath, prompting Alex to snap his head around. What's your problem? Alex grills, keeping calm as he proposed the question. Both of you knock it off, I don't want to have to say it again. I snarl, giving them a look that told them that I was in no mood to deal with it any further. But before another word could be uttered, a thunderous metallic sounding slam erupted from the interior of the mall, prompting all of us to quickly refocus our attention to where it should have been in the first place. The lights on the first level of the building were still on, but dimly so, which struck me as odd. I thought about why the nocturnals would allow them to remain in working condition like this, unless it was a trap. Like I said, eyes up, I asserted, just before beginning to lead the team inside. We began at the food court area of the interior, 
All the vacant restaurants inside felt eerie and desolate, while the main area of the court itself gave off a similar lifeless and liminal vibe. It wasn't dilapidated by any means, but that somehow made me more uneasy. It was all clean and maintained enough to not look abandoned, but still unnervingly empty. It wasn't usually a feeling that I experienced on these operations, but regardless of this newfound kind of distress, I had to keep leading us forward. I wanted just one mission where we all make it out alive. We scoped out the food court and each took a peek into some of the restaurants, seeing what had been left behind in the wake of the sudden shutdown. I hadn't discovered anything notable, just a couple of phones, wallets, and other things that had been left behind or lost. Update me on your status. Jennifer radios in suddenly. None of them in sight, and we're just scoping out the food court for now. I'm gonna head up to the second floor to terminate the ones up there within the next 10 minutes. I reply, my tone softening as my attention gets grabbed by something else. Just keep moving, we don't have much time. Jennifer retorts in a no-nonsense fashion. I laid eyes on a notebook that was sitting on top of one of the restaurant counters. It looked rather worn down. Even from the distance that I had been standing at, I could tell that it had been used frequently. My first thought was to assume that it was just used by the business as a method of record keeping. But when I walked over, picked it up, and looked at the contents inside, I was given a very different answer. As I said, it was a notebook, but one that was being used as a journal, seemingly by one of the employees who had worked here. Entry 1, December 15th, 2021, 1pm. Mike called me in today, not usually one for working on my days off, but whatever, I'll be getting Christmas off anyway. I was supposed to go to the gym this morning and I didn't and now the regret is already setting in. I'm gonna get out of this job one day and finally get started on that novel. Like dad always said, it ain't gonna write itself. I'm gonna try and work up the courage to ask out Laura. Everyone always says to never romantically engage with people that you work with. But it's not like this job is gonna be my career or anything. Plus, the worst thing she can do is say no. December 15th, 2021, 3.42 p.m. Alright, first break of the night. Things are relatively slow. Guess there must be a problem with the power in the back room. The lights keep flickering and it's really weird and... I don't know if I'm losing my mind or whatever, but it's almost like there's a pattern to it. Eh, whatever, I'm probably just looking too deep into it. Mike said that he's gonna have to stay to close down with us. Had a couple of people call off. He's really a decent boss at the end of the day, so I don't really mind. But something seems like it's been getting to him recently. I went into the office to let him know that I had showed up for my shift, and the lights were all off. And he got a little irritated when I turned them on. Says that he can't stand anything too bright at the moment, but he won't tell anybody why. December 15th, 2021, 9.15pm. Closing down wasn't as hard as I thought it would be, but something had apparently spooked Laura real bad when she turned the lights off in the walk-in cooler. Told me that she could have sworn something was watching her while she was in there. I just think that she's had a long day. Plus, she's always come off as a nervous person in all honesty, 
It's almost cute in a way. Yeah, that came off a bit more creepy now that I reread it. December 15th, 2021, 11.22pm. Alright, now I'm a little on edge and I just ended up getting a call from work, which would obviously be fine. If it wasn't for the fact that not only was the restaurant closed, but the entire mall was. Nobody was inside the building to be able to make the call. I didn't pick it up, I just let it ring. I didn't get a second call, luckily, which I thought would make me feel a little bit better. But something just isn't sitting right. I'm gonna try to go to bed. Maybe a good night's sleep will help me relax a bit. December 16th, 2021, 1.07am. Could have sworn that I heard something downstairs. I texted dad to check it out. He says that he didn't see anything wrong. It just doesn't make sense. I know what I heard and I know that I'm not crazy or anything. Every part of me is telling myself that there's something wrong. But if nothing is truly there, then what can I do? Maybe I really do just need to go to bed after all. December 16th, 2021, 4.22am. It's so late and I'm exhausted. I can barely even keep my eyes open as I write this. But I need to write this down. What I saw in my nightmare. At least I'm hoping that's all that it was. Felt so real, so vivid. I was in the middle of a pine forest and it was nighttime. When I looked up at the sky, the moon appeared to be bright. But it didn't help how dark it was immediately surrounding me. I could only see trees and dirt. Trees and dirt that went on out into the black void. The idea of being utterly alone, especially in the woods, always freaked me out. But this was something else. I couldn't see anything, or at least dream me couldn't see anything. But I was fully aware that no one was coming to help me. And that only made it that much worse. I tried moving forward to get a bearing on my surroundings, but... There wasn't anything else other than what I had seen before. Dirt trees and darkness. All that I was doing was getting myself more lost. But I had to move, I mean I had to do something. I couldn't just stand there like a sitting dog. Soon enough, whatever presence was with me made itself known. There wasn't a rustling of bushes or the snapping of branches. No, nothing like that but I heard a voice project itself from behind me. A low distorted one that just barely sounded human if you tried hard enough to hear that part. This is not your hour, Julius. It says, causing me to quickly snap around. But when I finished my turn, there wasn't anything there. So I spun back around to the direction that I was looking in to begin with, and I nearly fell over when I saw him or whatever it was. All I knew is that it was no man, it couldn't have been. Well, it maybe had the shape of one, but that's where any normal human features about it stopped. It was like a man's shadow had grown a mind of its own and separated from him. A shadow man with red eyes. And oh, those eyes, those piercing red eyes. They were as bright as freaking traffic lights, staring me down like I was prey. Which in essence, I guess I was. I spun my head around and more of them appeared. They just kind of came out of nowhere, all surrounding me and probably preparing to close in. They repeated that same phrase. 
This is not your hour, Julius. And all their voices combined together, it was horrible. A whole bunch of busted microphones all put together to make one horrific sounding call. And then they suddenly started flying over in my direction. And I mean flying. I just stood there doing nothing as they got close. Once they were within range to grab me, they did and that's when I woke up. My eyes were wide with terror and I almost yelped like a frightened puppy before quickly cutting myself off. Who knows how mad my dad would have gotten at me for waking him up a second time in one night. December 16th, 2021, 12.45pm. I'm about to start my shift. Just needed to relax a bit in the break room before I clock in. Still thinking about that dream last night. Am I overthinking or freaking out too much? I don't know, maybe I'm just a wuss at the end of the day. I was hoping to talk to Laura to brighten up my shift a bit, but according to my coworkers, she's a no-show, no-call today. I'm gonna just try and focus on the task at hand tonight and not let myself get too into my own head. December 16th, 2021, 8.52pm. I don't know how to say this, but one of those things from my dream, it was here. I saw it and I know that it was real. It was real. I think it's still inside the walk-in cooler. I told our acting manager to head inside there because I thought that I saw some leakage and he said that there wasn't anything wrong. I think these things might be hunting me. Why are they coming after me? What did I do to deserve this? If you find this, whoever you are, just please help me. And that was it, the end of the journal. Poor Julius, the ending made his fate pretty clear. He had joined the ranks of the Nocturnals. Heck, he may even be one of the ones that we encountered out in the parking lot. What'd you find? Terrence asked, approaching me from behind. I hesitate for a second just before turning to look at him with a blank expression, trying to hide how disturbed I actually was. Figured that it was better to keep that to myself, just for the sake of morale. Just another piece of evidence. Keep a hold of this and make sure we get it back to Jennifer. She'll want to take a look. Will do. You okay? Seem a little dead. And more than usual. He jokes, seeing through my facade. I'll be fine, let's just keep going, get this done and get the heck out of here. When we regrouped, it appeared at first that I was the only one who had found anything of true significance that was also abuse. The next in line to me in that regard was Alex, who had seemingly discovered what looked to be a cracked disc with the words Shadow Walkers written on it in a black marker, making it obvious what it most likely contained. Found this in the office of the Breitbreaker over there, who was stuck midway in the disc tray of the computer, thinking that it might give us something else to work off of. I took the disc from him as he hands it to me, looking at it in close detail for a couple of seconds, before sliding it underneath the strap of my utility belt. Yeah, we'll let Jennifer and the guys back at base have a look at it when we return, I told him. For now, we need to start sweeping the areas that we haven't looked at yet. And my sentence was cut off by the sudden erupting sound of a dog's bark. But it was a bark that didn't sound very typical. Not for any regular dog that I knew.
This one was too bassy, and it reverberated as if it possessed its own internal echo. That wasn't mentioning the slight distortion that it had as well. The lights in the food court suddenly began to flicker and we all snapped to attention, preparing to defend ourselves. Ron, behind you! Terrence calls out, pointing his finger at whatever he was referring to. I turn around, behind me was the hallway that converged in the food court, and it led into the large corridor where all the various shops and businesses had resided. In the space that bordered both the food court and the corridor was a thick shadow, a shadow in the shape of a medium-sized dog, and just like with its human nocturnal counterparts, its eyes glowed a bright red. They pierced through the on-and-off darkness as the lights continued to flicker. Not even the four-legged ones are safe from assimilation, huh? I announce uneventfully. Unable to find words to describe the bizarre nature of the encounter. Guess not, poor pup. Melody adds. The nocturnal canine then begins to slowly levitate in our direction. Barking deep as the flickering of the lights intensifies. I raise my light weapon pointing it at the creature as he approaches closer with every passing second. He ain't a pup anymore, Carter adds, eagerly lifting his light weapon in the air, just as Alex had backed out of the path of his beam. Hey, put it down, I've got it, I tell him, reaching over to switch on my light. But instead of obeying, he recoils, looking at me as if I had just challenged his intelligence. What, you don't think that I can handle one little ghost dog? He grills, prompting me to lower my brows at him in frustration. I'm not an idiot, you know. Ah, shut it. I snarl in return. The dog was now less than a dozen feet away and I had to act. I put my finger on the light weapon slider and pushed it to the low setting, instantly bathing the canine in an ocean of light. Its loud echoey bark converts to a shallow and reverberated whimper, signifying that it's wave of agony before annihilation. You all start heading down, I'm gonna stay back and finish a sweep in the court with Carter, I say, causing Carter to shoot me a worried look. We'll be on comms and let you know if we run into anything, they say. Perfect, we'll catch up in a couple of minutes. Garrett, Melody, Terrence, and Alex all turn and head down the main aisle. I watch them cautiously turn the corner and remind them once more to watch each other's backs and to contact me if they get into trouble. And speaking of, I turn my attention over to Carter, who stood just a few feet to my right. Judging by the expression that crept up on his face, he knew what he was in for. It wasn't fear per se, but he looked guilty. I'm sorry, he said calmly, prompting me to put up a hand. You know, I could sit here and chew you out, yell at you. Even used to do a few slaps across the mouth back when I first started. Anyway, I just want to let you know that when I say something, I need it done that way. At that time. And as you can see, the stuff we do is into 9 to 5 in an air-conditioned office. If you screw up here... It ain't going to result in paperwork getting shoved in the wrong filing cabinet. People die on this job. Many have and many will continue. We don't have room for questioning your superiors. Not on the field at least. 
because hesitation means death when you do what we do. I said before pausing. As Carter had looked desperate to interject a thought of his own, after I spoke my last sentence. It's not like I chose to be here. A lot of us didn't. Sir. He punctuates the last second. Don't tell Garrett that I said that. And despite the mood that I've been in for the past 20 minutes, I smiled, finding his slight awkwardness charming in a strange way. But he realized I still needed to address the issue at hand. You were a forced recruit. They told me that they stopped doing that a long time ago. I informed him, my face contorting into a frustrated expression. Yeah, I, um, I saw some stuff that I wasn't supposed to see. They told me that they couldn't let me go back out into the public with the things that I witnessed. Garrett and I were with each other when it happened and we were kids. He says somberly. I couldn't help but sympathize. Perhaps I was going soft. I'm sorry, man, but as long as you throw some of that respect my way, I'll throw it back. Just next time, make sure you to trust my leadership in public. And ask me questions in private, alright? Carter only responds with a slow nod. And just as I was about to tell him that we needed to go catch up with the others, both of our radios suddenly crackle to life. The distorted and frantic voice of Melody coming through them. I snapped to attention, going silent in order to listen with Carter. Ron, we need you. They're moving in on us. She cried, the tone of urgency ever so present. Let's go, now, I bark, beginning to turn and break into a run, or rather something resembling one, as I still had to carry my light weapon. Carter takes up the rear, following close behind me as we dart forward. It was only a matter of seconds before we passed the area where the food court and shopping hall initially converged, and then we made a hard left. All the ceiling lights flickering down the entire length of the corridor. Towards the middle section of which I spotted Terrence, Garrett, Alex, and Melody, all standing in a circular formation, with their light weapons aimed and ready at the dozens of nocturnals that surrounded them. Fear and stress obvious in all of their expressions. Hang on, I call out, waving Carter over to keep pace with me as we started ahead in their direction but our attempt to intervene would be halted before we could even get five steps in their direction. The flickering of the lights greatly intensifies in a matter of seconds, all the way up to the point where they completely went out, drenching the corridor in a more potent darkness. I told Carter to get next to me and prepare for a fight, and it would be coming soon enough. I looked around, spotting several pairs of the nocturnal's eyes surrounding the both of us but they didn't move. Not yet, anyway. They just surrounded us as if to make sure there were no gaps for us to escape their clutches. Is everything okay over there? What's going on? Jennifer radios in, but I was in no position to make a reply. This, this is, is not, not your hour, Ron. Boom the voices of the nocturnals all synchronizing as they said it. I could hear a mix of both men and women and even what sounded like a young child. That last part being further confirmed by a pair of red eyes that sat far below the rest, indicating a significant difference in height. A nocturnal that had an outline resembling a young girl. I go to quickly switch my weapon on, 
reaching for the slider just as Carter releases a blood-curdling shriek. I turn around, watching as one of the nocturnals yanked him further back into the darkness, causing him to drop his weapon and scream for his life as he vanished from my sight. No! I hollered desperately, frantic in my maneuvers to fight back. Run! Carter cried out. I brought my weapon up and aimed it in the general direction that he had been grabbed, this time wasting not a single moment turning it on, and to the highest level that I had used up to this point, I couldn't let him die. The light exploded out, creating a beam that was so powerful that I had to turn away as I waved the weapon from side to side. The nocturnals in the most immediate path of the beam were all almost instantly evaporated, having no chance to retreat or counterattack. They themselves also let out horrific cries of pain as the light made contact with their phantom anatomy. But I didn't care for their pain. They were human ones, people like you and me who lived full and complex lives. But not anymore. They were simply creatures bent on the extermination of anything that wasn't themselves. Another horrible scream came from further down the corridor, but this one hadn't sounded like it was coming from the nocturnals. No, it sounded much more human, and the reality of it being one of us registered with me quickly. The ones who hadn't been directly in the path of the light's weapon beam, when I had turned it on, began to move in on me. So I immediately threw myself forward and then did a 180, now shining the light at the nocturnals who were previously behind me. But this group was prepared. They all quickly dispersed, avoiding the direct path of the beam all of them quickly levitating to either side of it, just before I had finished turning around. But the brightness was far too powerful for that, to completely shield them from its effects. The few nocturnals on each side all quickly dashed backward, screeching and crying out in agony as they attempted to retreat. But I backed up and kept the light pointed forward in front of me, while turning my head to look for Carter. Where'd you go, Carter? Are you okay? I shouted frantically, only to feel my stomach sink once I had received no response from him. Carter, I called out again, tell me that you're alright. Here. I heard him reply rather weakly from a distance. My eyes were focused forward at the group of nocturnals, all attempting to flank around and ambush me at the sides. Hearing Carter's voice brought me some relief but not enough. I turned, swinging my arms left and right, letting the light blare on either side of me, to keep them at bay. The ones at the very front of each group were quickly evaporated, while the ones further back merely screeched and levitated backward into the darkness, their eyes being the only remaining indicator of their presence. I turned only my head and spotted Carter laying on the floor just a few feet behind me. Can you get up? I asked. Are you injured? I don't know, he responds, his voice hoarse. I see him crawl forward and try to lift himself up in my peripheral vision. Carter groans as I work on dispatching the remaining nocturnals, first shining my light directly on the group to my right, and evaporating them in the beam before I swing my body to terminate the ones on my left. They were already prepared, dispersing as far apart as they could before I was able to get the beam directly on them. I see a pair of eyes dart toward me and before I could even react, my weapon was promptly yanked from my hands, 
getting thrown to the left and sliding along the floor in a harsh skid. The beam light flickers once it comes to a stop, seemingly from internal damage as a result of the manhandling. The nocturnal responsible was now right in front of me, and I could feel a cold, ice-like and tight grip on my shoulder and the shape of a human hand. In a panic, I attempted to reach for my more traditional sidearm, but a second grip had found its way around my arm, stopping it dead in its tracks. I looked up and to my left, uh, unable to move, now seeing two pairs of those glowing eyes staring right into my soul. And I thought of all my years of experience would prepare me for my own demise, but no. I knew what was in store for me, and it was a fate far worse than death. I don't think it would have been possible for me to feel terror like that anymore, but there I was, being proved horribly wrong. The nocturnals both continued their stare as I feel an icy chill run its way up my spine, and it wasn't metaphorical. I legitimately felt like I was going to freeze to death right then and there. It was a sensation cold that was unlike anything that I had experienced up to that point. Assimilation. Both of their voices combined to say, echoing and reverberating right in my ears. And just as I thought that it would be the end for me, that I was going to be transformed into a malicious, red-eyed shadow man, a sudden burst of light erupted from the left. I immediately close my eyes and I hear the two nocturnals let out their now recognizable shrieks and cries of pain before the grip on both my shoulder and arm suddenly loosen. I drop to my knees with my eyes still closed as I shiver and my teeth chatter. It felt like I had just stepped out into the middle of Antarctica while being nude. Once I felt the brightness fade and knew that it was safe to open my eyes again, I did just that, looking to my left and seeing Carter standing there, panting heavily with his light weapon in hand. Are, are you okay? He inquired, not looking 100% himself either. I nod my head slowly to answer his question, and then he walks over, reaching out his left hand and offering me to take it, which I do, thanking him for saving my life while my teeth are still slightly chattering. Hello, is everything okay? Why haven't I been getting comms? Jennifer radioed in once more, her tone frantic. It was rare that she ever lost her cool, even in scenarios like this. I reached up and got on my comms, quickly getting a reply out to calm Jennifer's nerves. The current group has been terminated, still have to do a headcount. I say trying to keep my tone calm despite what had just happened. I look over to the rest of the group and they all came running over to Carter and I while we were both in the midst of regaining ourselves. But hey, at least we can both say that we had survived a nocturnal assimilation initiation. A lot more than any of these others could say. When the rest of the team made it over, I was hoping to hear things like, You two okay? No one is hurt, we're fine, but no. Nothing could ever be that simple. And my rare feeling of optimism was quickly shot down by what Melody was soon to inform me of. We can't find Terrence. Alex says that he saw him get grabbed by one of those things when we were surrounded and in the struggle. My jaw dropped as I heard it. It took a minute to register in my head. After everything that we had survived and endured together, he was going to be taken out like that. As much as the more logistical side of me knew that he was probably beyond saving, 
I still held out hope. Do you know if he was assimilated for sure? I probed, desperate for the answer that I wanted to hear. Alex stepped up, the expression on his face telling me that he wasn't in any hurry to spill the beans. No, they were all just around us in every direction. We almost got overwhelmed. All I know is that I saw him get thrown back into the darkness by a few of those things. I was held up by the ones that were immediately on my butt, and I couldn't shine my light over in time to help him. He punctuates, looking at the floor while shaking his head. But if he's nowhere to be found, I think we're too late. So you're saying that you had a chance to help him, but you saved your own skin instead? Carter grilled in a snarly tone. Hey, I messed up alright, get off my butt. If you both got grabbed by them and survived, I'm sure that he could have too. Maybe we just need to look a little bit harder. Alex retorted. Yeah, you say that. Yet instead of doing that, you decided to come over here and waste all this time talking about it. Alright, shut it, the both of you. I erupted. I think, I think we gotta face the fact that Terrence is gone. We have a mission to complete and we need to finish the rest of these things off. He was a smart man and a good agent. He knew the risks of this job. And we'll make sure to avenge him. But we can't stop now. My little pseudo-speech was met with mostly silence. With the exception of Melody who seemed to be taking it harder than anyone else. Or maybe that was me. I just had an easier time hiding it. After everything, why did he have to go down like that? She said softly, shaking her head left and right. We're all going to make sure that it wasn't in vain. I said in the most reassuring tone that I could muster. After we all took a moment to regain ourselves from the encounter, I radioed to Jennifer and let her know that Terrence had more than likely been assimilated. Her reaction was what I mostly expected although I could sense a slight bit of grief in the tone of her reply. But I didn't push any luck by saying anything about it. Are the rest of you okay and able to fight? She asked in a way that demanded a specific answer. Yeah, we should be fine. I'd tell her before going. Was the recon team able to figure out any specific place or spot on the mall that they're most concentrated at? Saw a bunch on the second floor when we were coming in, but they seemed to be pretty spread out. Might be a while before we can fully take all these things down if we keep going at it like this. And my weapon was destroyed as well, so I'll be relying on the others for a bit. A few moments of silence ensue as I hear the sound of Jennifer typing away on a keyboard in the background, presumably pulling up whatever data it is that she needed. There's a sports con store all the way at the back of the mall. It's the biggest business in there. One of the recon agents said that he saw a lot of them congregating there when he did a flyover with the team. But that might have changed in between the report updates. Well, we're going to head there and finish this then, before anybody else dies. I say rather firmly, which was pretty bold at the time considering how Terrence's demise was technically my fault. Had I not told the team to head forward in order to stay behind and talk to Carter then there was a chance that our extra firepower could have saved them. But I had to live with the gravity of my mistake and move on. As I said earlier, I wasn't going to let what happened to Terrence be for nothing. I gathered the team and we all set out for the sports con store. 
which was going to end up being around a 10 minute walk. So that gave us some time to talk and converse on the way there, which wasn't nearly as lively as it could have been due to obvious circumstances. So like what, you went into another dimension or something? Garrett inquires while glancing over at Alex, keeping pace with him as Alex prepared to answer. Call it the expanse. Got stuck in there twice. Second time I got out. I ended up inside one of our facilities. Alex replies. They took me and trained me and made me into a half-decent agent. And here I am. So how does it work? You just find walls that looked weird and you could pass through them. Like a ghost or do you have like special powers or something? Walls, floors, ceilings, whatever. There's a bit more to it than that. But yeah, you got the general idea down. It can happen to anyone at any time. Just gotta be in the right place at the right time. Or the wrong place at the wrong time. Depending on your perspective. There was a pause as the two of them figured out what to say next. I almost felt proud that they were moving past their earlier hostility with one another. And the way a teacher is proud of their students. And you two got attacked by a giant dirt monster, is that it? Alex asked, breaking the palpable silence. Pretty much. Can't really think of any other way to describe it. It killed and transformed one of our friends into something else. Happened when we all went trick-or-treating on Halloween. We were just kids. Alex's eyes go wide in a way that I hadn't seen them do before. He actually seemed pretty interested and concerned in what Carter was telling him. That same thing also killed my dad. Just swiped him aside like he was a stuffed animal. Hit him so hard that he died on impact. Garrett interjects. I'm sorry, Alex replied, visibly unsure on how to respond beyond that. He's in a better place now. I'm glad that he doesn't have to see the rest of the terrible crap this world hides. But hey, at least now I know that when I'm on the field, fighting these things, these creatures, I can rest easy, knowing that I have nothing else to lose. Kinda helps me do the job a bit better in a weird way. And I'll be honest when I say that I was now actively listening to everything that they had been talking about. This kind of camaraderie and dialogue wasn't something that you would usually hear on these missions. But ever since the change in management, things had been a bit more relaxed and I think they carried over to most of the agents over the years. After hearing the tragic details of Garrett and Carter's past, he looked eager in a I want to connect with you sort of way to share more about his as well. And he did just that. You know how I talked about getting into the expanse earlier, right? He inquired, glancing at both Carter and Garrett. Yeah, they both shot back simultaneously. Well, we had an entrance in the basement of my parents' house when I was a teenager. It was a wall that you could just kind of pass through. I told my parents about it time and time again, and they never believed me. Basically told me that I was crazy. So one day, I tried to get video proof of it. And next thing you know, I fell through it. And I was surrounded by yellow walls, and I was getting chased by a giant centipede through a maze that I had never seen before. And according to the things that I found in that place, it was far from the first one to ever get trapped in there. 
but maybe one of the first to make it out. You sure you just didn't take any hallucinogens? Melody cracked sarcastically, prompting a lighthearted chuckle from each of the team members. As we finished sharing our small bit of laughter, I spotted the entrance of the sports con store. To the right of said entrance was a large, 12-foot display statue of Santa Claus. Its face was sculpted in a way that made it look a little uncanny, almost as if it was staring at us and following our every movement with its eyes. Yeah, I'm sure children will just be dying to run up to that thing, Melody blurts. You read my mind, I added. Only Satan would want to sit on that lap. As we neared the entrance, I radioed Jennifer, just to let her know that we had made it. When you complained earlier, I sent out a second recon chopper to scan the building and see if you had missed any. According to these scan data they sent back to the site, the remaining lot of them should be inside that store. So all you have to do is take them out and you'll be okay to head back to the transport truck. She informed me. I stopped both myself and the team, relaying what Jennifer had just said, prompting them all to look relieved that it would all be over soon enough. What are we going to do without a light? Won't it be too dangerous? Asked Melody, genuine concern in her voice. I'm going to do what I failed to do earlier. Watch all of your backs and make sure that nobody gets caught off guard. You guys got this. I'll be fine. I nodded. And as if on cue, the lights in the corridor began to violently flicker once more, prompting all of us to get into a back-to-back -back stance, as we had done previously. But I wasn't as fearful this time around. I actually felt confident. I had a team, a smart and capable team, and despite what we had lost up to this point, we were going to make sure that it served a purpose. Let's show these things what we're made of. I snarled, trying to get Carter, Garrett, Alex, and Melody to share my current mindset. The flickering of the lights intensified. I kept an eye on the entrance to the store as we all anticipated seeing the shadows, the red eyes and hearing the distorted voices that were all too familiar. If I die, I just want to let you guys know that you're not the morons that I thought you were, Carter announced. We're going to make it, Alex growled in response clearly not sharing Carter's doubts. If we all keep our heads on straight, we'll be okay, Melody added. The flickering reached a breaking point and soon enough, it felt like we were standing in the middle of a dance floor in some low-budget nightclub. The constant millisecond transitions between darkness and light became disorienting. We all verbally complained and cursed, waiting for the shadowy adversaries to show themselves, and we got what we wished for soon enough. Suddenly, the flickering came to a halt. In this particular corridor, it went dark, the only sources of light being that from inside the stores on either side of where we stood. Looking back at the entrance to the sports con store, I saw the pairs of red eyes begin to appear. Two at a time, they popped up within the pool of darkness, right outside of the door. I counted 40 pairs, all of them lined up with each other in a perfect single-file fashion, if you could call it that. They all focused on us, making not a single movement, as we watched each other. 
white as a plague, came the amalgamation of all sorts of their voices at once, the echoes of such carrying its way down the corridor. I ordered everyone to stand their ground and to be alert, and prepare as we waited for them to initiate their attack, an attack that I was sure would leave us in great peril. This is the single biggest group that we had faced inside the building yet, and we were down one light weapon. But the moments went by and they never moved forward, it left me wondering what they were planning and what strategy that they had in mind to utilize against us. Perhaps they were even smarter than we previously assumed. Just when I had thought that it was going to turn into some long standoff, they were suddenly in motion once again. Not at us though, no. They all darted toward the giant statue of Santa outside the store entrance. What the? Melody questioned, flabbergasted in her tone. And judging by everyone's expressions, we had all agreed with her. They all began to surround the statue, making a perfect circular formation around it. And after holding that position for only a few seconds, they levitated forward in a violently quick manner, all of their bodies visibly passing inside the statue itself. We all then slowly backed up at my command, and I watched with the rest of the team in a combination of horror and awe as this strange mind-bending event took place right in front of us. Once all 30 of the nocturnals had gone inside, the statue's white marble exterior slowly began to shift in color. The marble appears to maintain its hardness as it transformed into a pitch black shade, of course, like that of a shadow. Everything but the red hat coat and boots all turned black and took on the form of a shadow. And each of these statues' creepy eyes disappeared behind two separate walls of glowing rose red circular blobs. I don't know how or if they had been able to do things like this the whole time, but I wasn't going to get much time to ponder it anyway. Did they just... Alex began. Yeah, they went full on Power Rangers, Garrett said, finishing Alex's sentence. The nocturnal statue then slowly moved forward, its right foot inching forward and hitting the floor with a hard bang, prompting me to question if it was still truly solid despite the fact that it had the form of nocturnal, or at least it did on the outside. Lights on now, full power. I shout as the nocturnal Santa then turns his head, looking down at us with nothing but malice and spite. Melody, Garrett, Carter, and Alex all switched their light weapons on while also making sure that they stood shoulder to shoulder to avoid getting blinded. The four of them all coordinated, concentrating their beams directly on nocturnal Santa, but this had very minimal effects, as I stood back and watched the statue turn its now shadowy head and raise an arm to block out the light. It seemed to be doing nothing more than simply irritating the newly formed creature. I immediately got myself on communications, as it was clear to me that we simply didn't possess the proper firepower to take this thing on, and that we would die trying if we continued. Jennifer, gonna need some backup here now. I desperately plead, avoiding an incoming piece of debris that had been torn up from one of the statue's footsteps. With its arms still covering its eyes, the creature takes a step forward and lunges downward, attempting to swat all of us away with its left arm. Luckily, this thing was slow enough for all of us to react in time 
and evade what would have been a fatal blow. What's going on over there? Why do you need extra help? Jennifer replied after my radio crackled to life. Not really any time to explain. Please, just get another team out here immediately. Nocturnal Santa charges forward at me, the ground below cracking and shaking as he, or it, moves at a much faster and far more terrifying pace than previously. The statue raises one of its shadow arms and makes a fist, preparing to slam it down and crush me as if I was nothing more than an insect. But I maneuver just in time, falling backward and somersaulting out of the spot of the impact. The marble floor is instantly smashed to pieces upon impact, just mere feet in front of me. And with our light weapons being useless against this monstrosity, I knew that we weren't going to be able to fight this thing off. Not without backup. So I told the team to do the only thing that we really could do. Run. Let's go, drop the weapons, all of you. I shouted while still on my butt, but after quickly jumping back up to my feet, I waved them over to join me in what would end up being one of the most intense cardio exercises of our lives. And I didn't have to tell them twice. They all immediately dropped their light weapons and darted over to me. Alex led the pack. Melody wasn't far behind and Garrett and Carter took up the rear. As they all caught up with me and put distance between themselves and their weapons, the statue raised a foot high, held it for a second and brought it down with devastating force, smashing all four of the lights as if they were made of nothing more than cheap cardboard. The lights in the mall began to flicker more severely than ever as we ran down the corridor in a full sprint, with the statue not all that far behind us. I held out hope that we would survive. As I stated earlier, Site 12 wasn't very far away from the mall, and if we booked it, by the time the second team had finished gearing up and heading over in a helicopter, we would be able to meet them at the front of the mall, but only if we didn't stop. Back to the entrance that go, I exclaimed like a drill sergeant. The lights continued flickering as I hear the thunderous footsteps of the statue behind us, the floor being cracked and smashed with every stride that thing took. You, you cannot, cannot stop, stop the darkness. darkness. Its voice boomed and it sounded nothing like Santa, but just another group of nocturnals, all collaborating on their vocals. We all began panting as we kept pumping our legs. I could feel the strain with every step, but I knew what stopping meant for me and the rest of my team. Midway through the death-defying run, I thought of any possible ways to slow this thing down, panicking as I failed to come up with anything that wouldn't get me or one of them killed. And it appeared that Garrett had the same idea. He turned around and quickly pulled his sidearm from his belt, aiming it right at the statue as he prepared to take a shot. That is, until I dashed over and grabbed the pistol out of his hands before I slapping his arm down. I can buy his time, he blurted. No, you're not playing hero, let's go. I demanded with the fury of an angry father. Garrett, however, was quick to obey once he and I were nearly crushed by the slamming of the statue's fist, just before we took off running again. Both of us hollering as we jumped back just in the nick of time. We rounded the corner and finished making our way through the main shop corridor, now merging into the food court area with the entrance in our line of sight. We dashed into the food court, running down the middle and evading the tables, chairs, and support beams, 
while the statue just simply smashed and ran right through them. They did very little in the way of slowing this thing down. The second team's chopper should be arriving any second, just hang on. Came Jennifer once more through the radio. But it brought me no relief, not with how much adrenaline was pumping through my veins at the time. And she was right. On the other side of the large pane glass window just above the mall entrance doors, I spotted the chopper hovering around 30 feet off the ground, waiting for us to make it outside. I kept going, keeping pace with Melody, Carter, and Alex as I caught up with them. But Garrett had lagged significantly behind when I turned my head to look back and the statue had its eyes on him. All of us practically threw ourselves out of the entrance, all of us except for Garrett who was still a couple dozen feet inside the mall. The look of horror on his face, being contagious as we watched a piece of debris the statue had kicked forward, hit him in the back and sent him face first right onto the floor. No! Carter screamed, but his voice was drowned out by the sound of the whipping of the helicopter blades as it lowered itself to be more level with the entrance, and by extension the statue. The statue stopped for just a matter of moments, and it lifted its leg up, preparing to smush Garrett and turn him into a pile of human mush. Carter then suddenly lunges forward, attempting to run back for his friend, and despite all the running that he had just done, it was clear that he still had plenty of adrenaline left in him to try and save Garrett. Carter, no! I exclaimed, trying and failing to chase after him. He left me in the dust as I tried to stop him before he made it back to the entrance. I didn't want to sit there and watch Garrett meet his demise either, but I couldn't risk Carter potentially suffering the same fate. But it didn't matter, because as we neared the entrance, the chopper fired an explosive rocket into the building. I could barely even comprehend the trail of smoke and the rippling sound of the rocket as it propelled past us. But once the rocket had hit its target, that being the statue, the resulting explosion sent both me and Carter flying back several feet. I groaned and howled as I rolled across the ground before coming to a stop after a few seconds. Blood made its way down my forehead, and I could feel that my gear had suddenly felt much warmer around me due to the heat of the explosion. That wasn't even mentioning the ringing in my ears either. Carter had gone unconscious, but according to Melody, he was still breathing. Alex had darted over to me as I looked back at the now desecrated entryway in a speechless expression, waiting for all the nocturnals that were previously inside the now destroyed statue to emerge and commence an attack in their separate forms. But they never came, which puzzled me considering how I had seen them function up to this point. You alright, boss? He asked, but I only knew it because I had read his lips. I didn't verbally respond. I simply kept staring forward, knowing that the threat had been eliminated. But we still lost another team member. There was not a chance that Garrett had survived the blast, and the last thing that I wanted to see were the various pieces of him that had probably been flung every which way. It wasn't long after that when the second team came down and assessed what had happened before taking us back to Site 12. As it turns out, I suffered a fracture in my arm, which wasn't fun at all when the pain had set in after the adrenaline wore off. The medical division did their thing and I was going to be in a cast for an uncertain period, but hey, at least them in a break from field work for a bit. 
Alex ended up going back to his site until he was supposed to permanently transfer over here, and I had honestly looked forward to potentially working with him in the future. Jennifer ended up allowing me a couple of days of rest before we had a post-mission conference between the two of us, and I was ready to get chewed out or worse. I took that time to do some very limited training with Melody, as we talked about the insane experiences that we had had with Terrence over the years. It wasn't going to be the same without him. Carter was more than broken up by what had happened to Garrett, and I couldn't blame him. That was his childhood friend after all, and after everything that they had went through, he had been snuffed out just like that. Sometimes I wish a bit more mercy existed in the world. I went out of my way to invite him to sit in on a few leadership meetings, of course making sure that I had been authorized to do so first. But soon enough, the final day came for me to give Jennifer my answer about the offer for assistant director of operations. And just like that, I found myself inside her office once again. Is there a reason the missile was able to kill all the ones inside the statue without any light-based weapons being needed? Would have been nice to know if it was that simple the whole time. I asked, doing my best to bite my tongue as I said it. I actually asked Dr. Garth and his team the same thing and we had no records or documents of the Nocturnals ever doing something like that before. Garth said that it was likely due to the fact that the Nocturnals can only fully assimilate a living, breathing creature made up of organic material. And that because they attempted to assimilate an object, especially one that large, it didn't turn out the same. They seemed to end up trapping themselves inside the statue, and when it was destroyed, they were as well, due to some of its more solid properties transferring into theirs. I wasn't even quite sure how that made any sense, but it's like I always say, nothing makes sense in this job. I didn't have anything to say in response to her explanation, so she of course moved on, not wanting to waste my time. So, I know you're aware of what I need from you today. I'm sure you've had plenty of time to think it over. I need to know, Ron. Do you want this promotion? Jennifer sighs, cupping her hands together on top of her desk. I looked at my cast and then at the floor. The room went so quiet that all you could hear was the blowing of the air conditioning. I had made my mind up about this matter as soon as the mission had ended. I was just circulating through all the different ways to tell Jennifer in my head, but soon enough it came to me, and it was the answer that I should have given all along. No. I hope you all enjoyed this week's episode. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you stay safe and sound, and as always, stay creepy.